And welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Ussery, and I'm happy to welcome Jeremy Scott to the program today. Jeremy is perhaps best known for being the voice and co-founder of the extremely popular YouTube channel CinemaSins, where he nitpicks the plots and details of movies. A few years ago, he started a young adult book series about a world where superheroes are real, but must remain in the shadows while keeping the world safe. It stars Philip, a young but blind hero, who bands together with other young but physically handicapped fellow students to help protect the Protectors. The first book is called The Ables, and Turner has recently released the second book in the series, entitled Strings. Jeremy, how did Philip Salinger end up in Freepoint, and where the heck is Freepoint? Uh, Freepoint is a fictional uh, location. I'm sort of doing a Simpsons thing here, not wanting to tell you where Springfield's located. Mm -hmm. Uh, the, the sequel makes it pretty clear it's somewhere in Illinois or Indiana. They're a couple hours from Chicago. And it's basically the kind of town I grew up in. I spent most of my middle school and high school years in a town called Ossian, Indiana. And at the time, it had 2,000 residents, one grocery store, one stoplight. Very small town where everybody knows everybody else. What they teach you is to write what you know. And I think one of the reasons they say that is creates this sort of subconscious authenticity that maybe isn't something you can put your finger on, but it's more just a general tone. And so I wrote the characters largely based on people in my real life, and I wrote this town very much to be like the town I grew up in when I was Philip's age. I talk about a pizza place in these books uh, called Jack's, where the kids like to go and have breadsticks with nacho cheese. It wasn't called Jack's, but there was a place in Aussie, and then I went with my friend Andy, and they had video games along the wall, and we always got the breadsticks with nacho cheese. So it's just an attempt at authenticity. I, I don't know how well it plays out, but that was my goal. So you're hearkening back to that time. How do you update it for X number of decades later? And again, when I wrote the first book, I was trying to keep the era somewhat general. I didn't want to necessarily set it explicitly in 2015, but I, I wanted some gadgets and some of our modern technology to be accessible to these guys. But I also wanted it to have sort of a timeless feel. You saw The Incredibles, right? Mm -hmm. It's a movie that's set pretty clearly in modern times, but the aesthetic of the show is like 60s, the televisions and the kitchen A little appliances. bit of mid-century modern Yeah, thing and it's sort of like trying to blend eras together. And I guess it was just my attempt to do that kind of thing, maybe. And I saw on Amazon that there were reviews that went for the Ables back to 2015. Had mm -hmm. it been published with an indie press before it got picked up by Turner? Or? Yes, that's correct. It was Clovercroft, basically a self-publishing kind of deal where they have the operation to print, but they let me make all the choices and the font and the cover and all that stuff. And we really cheated when I self-published in 2015 because I run a YouTube channel that at the time had – three and a half, four million subscribers, and we've almost doubled that now. And so I also had a manager who was good friends with somebody at Ingram in Nashville, which is one of the major distributors of books. And so he got a meeting and went in. I made a little video, and he met with all the salespeople who called Barnes & Noble and all the bookstores to try and get books in stores. And we just kind of tried to sell them on me and the book and then leverage that audience on YouTube uh, to market to. And we did pretty well. I was pretty happy with, I think we sold about 40,000 copies. Wow, that is great. Which is nothing to sneeze at. For um, an indie, yeah. More than made back our money, you know, got it out there, and I was really, really happy. And then a few years later, it ended up in the hands of somebody at Turner, uh, and they approached me about a re-release and then publishing the three sequels that I had had in mind. So 
you're the voice of Cinema Sins on YouTube. That's correct. As yeah. well as one of the co-creators. Why aren't you doing the audiobook for the uh, series? I did the audiobook in 2015 when I self-published, but it made me super anxious. So I have depression and anxiety, and I'm also more than 50% deaf. So that's sort of where I came from in writing about disabled superheroes. But being cooped up in an audio booth for hours at a time really spiked my anxiety. And so I came close to a couple of panic attacks. And it just seemed, at the end of the day, better for my own mental health to hire a professional who does these audiobooks for a living. And the guy we got to do the re-release and the sequel strings is fantastic. Really happy with what he did. I'm also, while I'm a narrator of a YouTube channel, not a professional voiceover actor. I don't know that I'm very good at doing the voices and what have you. That was made with my own self-interest in mind, and I'm pretty happy with that decision. So how do you manage that anxiety when you're doing it for CinemaSins? I manage anxiety in four main ways. I see a therapist regularly. He's fantastic. He challenges me, keeps me on my toes. I take a medication. I'm overly open about this stuff, by the way. So if I go too far, just let me know. There's too much stigma about therapy and mental health medications. I take a drug called Pristique. And my anxiety is basically fight or flight. My fight or flight response uh, goes off for no reason sometimes. So if untreated, I might be in the grocery store with a basket half full of items and just have to set it down and leave because my brain thinks I'm being attacked even though I'm not. So the medicine and the therapy do most of the work and then I just have to make sure I eat healthy and exercise. And, you know, over three or four years since being diagnosed, it's done a lot to really help me. And so this is pretty much around the time that the first Ables came out that you were diagnosed. Yeah, I was diagnosed because I couldn't sleep. I'm laying in bed and my heart is pounding. I thought I was going to have a heart attack. And I think it's probably both doubly connected to the YouTube channel and the success we were having and the pressures I felt there. And then, you know, putting a fictional story that I had written out there into the world to be judged. So I went to my MD and said, uh, I got a heart problem. And she started asking all these questions. She's like, no, you have anxiety. That was the beginning of my anxiety journey. And I've, now I've written it in to the sequel where my main character, Philip, is dealing with PTSD from the events of the first book. And he's seeing a therapist and talks casually about it, trying to, again, do what I can to destigmatize that stuff. Coming from a small town, did imposter syndrome play a role into this? Oh, uh, maybe, maybe. I'm not. I'm not 100 percent sure. No, like, like I don't. I don't deserve to be here. Is that right? Yeah, there's certainly some of that. You know, I'm a preacher's kid too, so there was a lot of my upbringing that was about, in a very loving way, making sure I understood everybody else is as important as I am. I'm not special. So yeah, I think there's a certain amount of that. When the YouTube channel took off, it didn't feel real. We didn't quit our jobs until we actually got a check from YouTube because we didn't think it was going to happen. And yeah, you know, you look at 8 million subscribers on YouTube or however many books we sold. And I think anybody with a level head would feel some measure of, do I deserve this? And then, you know, there's a healthy way to process that and realize, you know, maybe I got a little bit lucky, but I worked hard. I wrote these books, so I can be proud of that. So I know YouTube creators get these special plaques called play buttons mm -hmm. that are different levels of medals for how successful. So at 8 million, is that unobtainium or? <laughs> <laughs> no, they only send them at 100,000, 1 million, and 10 million. And what's humorous is YouTube keeps changing the supplier that they use to create <laughs> the buttons. So everyone, we actually have two spinoff channels, one for music videos and one for TV. And we've gotten plaques for both of those channels, but they all look different different shade of gold or what have you. But from what I'm told, the 10 million one is crystal. Uh, we'll see if we get to that point. Uh, 
I presume when you're writing your first book, The Ables, the channel hadn't launched yet when you were writing those stories. Um, yes, that's correct. So how was it writing strings with the pressures of creating and, and pumping out that content on YouTube? Well, it was fortunately just long enough that CinemaSins had grown from 2014 to, I guess I wrote strings about this time last year to 2018. So we had three people on staff. In addition to Chris, my co-founder, and myself, these are writers and editors who help us make the videos. So we were able to just schedule the YouTube channel stuff in such a way that I had about five weeks off. I basically sat down and over five weeks I wrote strings. My approach was a lot better though because when I wrote the first book, I didn't know where I was going. I knew my character and I knew my premise, but I didn't know the plot. So we self-published that book. Three years later, I, I already know the sequel. I know the story in and out. I know exactly where it's going to go. And I think that's the only reason I was able to write it as quickly as I did, because it had been living in here for a few years. But I just simply walked away from the YouTube stuff for about a month to get it written. So much of the first book in a series is world building. Mm -hmm. So let's investigate this world a little bit. Sure, sure. And Philip Salinger and his family has moved to Freepoint from Manhattan. Mm -hmm. His father takes him out to have the talk. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's mm -hmm. not the talk we're expecting. No, it's not. I don't know how many people can relate. I'm sure a lot. I had a pretty awkward talk with my father when I was about 12 years old, where he took me to a park and we sat on a picnic bench and I was free to ask questions. And you know, he was just sort of having the talk, quote unquote. And so I wanted to sort of ape that a little bit and make you think that's where this is going. Only at the end of that first chapter, the talk is he's being told he has superpowers, that he comes from a line of superheroes. And in this world of the Ables, they've been around as long as mankind have. There's even a reference, I think, early in the Ables to the mythological Roman and Greek gods were probably just exaggerated versions of the heroes back then. Probably Gilgamesh as well. Yes, yeah. Gilgamesh as well. And so, yeah, he finds out, hey, I'm, I'm from this bloodline. There's, there's only so many of us, but I'm going to get to be a hero. And he's going to go to superhero high school. The reason they move from Manhattan to Freepoint is that Freepoint is a hero city. Now, for lingo, I call my heroes custodians, based on a Greek or Latin word, custo, I believe, that meant guardians. It's in the book, and I've already forgotten what I wrote. And so most of the people who live in Freepoint are heroes or custodians, or they're humans without powers that are aware of the heroes and support them, either through clerical duties or doctors and what have you. It's an amazing feat that they've kind of kept under the radar all this time. Well, yes, and there's the implication in the first book that there are some mentally powered heroes who have helped hide them. But those strong mentally powered heroes are dying out, and we're not seeing as many of those powers in the younger heroes showing back up. So as we move forward, the existence of heroes becomes well-known. By the time we reach Strings, they're actively trying to arrest the custodians and put them in internment camps and basically control who gets to be heroes and who doesn't. His father tells Philip that he has a superpower, and it's the same one he has, telekinesis, mm -hmm. but there's a fly in the ointment because Philip has a physical disability. Yes, Philip is blind. So how will he be able to move things with his mind when he can't see them? His father teaches him a little lesson in that out there in the cornfield where he tries to get him to move his phone because he knows the shape of the phone. He knows the weight of the phone. He places it on the bench in front of him and says, you know where it is. And Philip is able to move it a little bit, even though he's blind. But when he gets to school, and this, granted, this is a school that's all for superheroes. He gets his class assignment and he finds out he's been put in special ed. And he meets Henry, 
who is a telepath in a wheelchair. He meets Bentley, who has leg braces and has a form of cerebral palsy, but has a supercomputer brain. And the story is essentially their friendship and their attempts to overcome the limits their superhero society have put on them. The adults don't think these disabled kids can be full heroes. And so they must be held back and given extra attention and pampering and what have you. And of course, that drives these characters crazy. They want to get out there and use their powers. And they find some creative ways to do that. There is one girl in the class who has super hearing, but she's physically deaf. And that just must be a terrible torment for her. Yeah, it is. And I wanted to be real. And it felt like if you have superheroes and disabilities and a bunch of kids in a class, you're going to come across at least one or two who are really stuck, who can't truly use their powers. She's not a main character. She doesn't show up in the second book. But I wanted to put that there so that everybody knew, you know, it could be even worse than it is for our main characters. Thankfully, they are able to combine their abilities and make themselves into full heroes. But there are some unlucky few out there who just got dealt a bad deck of cards. And here comes the inevitable question, which superpower would you like to have yourself? Oh, telekinesis by far. I've always said this since I was a kid, the ability to move things with your brain. And I always envisioned it being more than simply there's a book on the other side of the room. I'm going to pull it to me, which is certainly a use of that power. But it's hinted near the end of the Ables by Bentley, the supercomputer brain, that Philip might even be able to fly if he pictures himself as the object He's able to move with his mind, and he moves himself up into the air. And yeah, so uh, Philip is very much me. In fact, Philip, Henry, and Bentley are all three me. They're three extreme ends of my personality. Philip is the do-gooder Boy Scout that I have always wanted to be. Henry is the sarcastic guy who cracks wise all the time, and that's definitely in my blood. And then Bentley is the solution finder. He's the one who is not going to be beaten down by an obstacle, he's going to try and figure out a way around it. And so, yeah, Philip's power is the one I always wanted to have myself. So you're a little bit of Elbin, it seems. Yeah, all so. those, yes. All those. yes. <laughs> so tell us about this legendary figure of Elbin. Oh, uh, he is prophesied to return. I wanted to sort of do almost like a Greek mythology or a biblical Old Testament tale of a custodian way, way back in the days. And Elbin is that guy. And there's a prophecy that says he will come back, and he's much more powerful than a regular custodian. He basically was able to do everything. He was able to harness all the potential powers in one being. And so the villain of the Abels, a man named Finch, believes that Philip is the reincarnation of Elbin, believes that Philip is the one who has returned that can do all. And he's trying to, quote unquote, turn him to the dark side, if you will. I think there's something a little bit in all of us as we're growing up that we think we're special, Mm -hmm. but we just don't know how we are. Mm -hmm. This seems like this really fills that role of us wanting to be special and trying to find our place. Yeah, there's a little bit of wish fulfillment there. Again, I wanted to have telekinesis. I wanted to be a hero. I wanted to be special. And, you know, these kids do too, and they are. But as they go on in life and have these adventures, they're going to learn that being special comes with other baggage that... Maybe you don't like so much. Maybe people you love get hurt. Maybe you get hurt. Maybe there's collateral damage when you're trying to save somebody and and you hurt others. Yeah, I mean, there's a little wish fulfillment there. I want it to be special, but I had to give these characters a path to carve themselves between hero life and just being a human, stuck in the middle. How do we navigate that road? That's what I wanted to explore. 
Philip's mother and his friend James are both teleporters. Mm -hmm. And it just dawned on me today that instead of just thinking that there are people who do teleportation, Mm -hmm. Porter, also a a person who helps people with their luggage on trains, that they're actually the train porters of the superhero world. Yeah, yeah. They're like human taxis to great extent. Teleporters in in my world can go from one spot to another on the planet in an instant. Philip's mother shows off her power by taking him from their home in Freepoint right out to the beach on the East Coast, which I think for a blind person, the sound of the ocean would probably, I think, be mesmerizing. It is to me, and I have sight. But yeah, James has turned it into a little business. James is a friend of Philip's, and he's a teleporter. He hands out his business card, wears a sharp suit, and you know, for a very small fee, he can teleport you around town if you want to go to Jack's for a slice of pizza or if you want to go to your buddy's house. And yeah, they make use of James's ability to do hero stuff. Yeah, I don't think I want to say much more than that. But that's got to be heck on a parent because, you know, when you get your first bicycle, say, oh, you can go to the end of the block or maybe you can go two streets over. And this kid has the ability to go all around the world. He does. And well, James is also blind. And so James and Philip share a lot of blind humor with each other. But, you know, James has had to adapt because, again, how does he teleport from one location to another if he doesn't have sight? And so he's found a way to use people's descriptions of places. And largely, he says, if I've been to a place physically, I can always go back with my teleportation. And again, so there are times in the book where they are not sure if they're going to be able to use his power to their advantage, and they have to wait and see if they can. I think I would choose that as my my teleportation. Yeah, because, I mean, we could really cut down on the greenhouse gases. You really could. I mean, I live in Nashville, so I drove over this morning, and that would have been a breeze if I was a teleporter. Well, just every day in afternoon traffic on 65 (laughs) or 24 in Nashville (laughs) would be great. (laughs) Exactly. I think superheroes are all about wish fulfillment. I wish I could get from here to there without dealing with the stuff in the middle. I wish I could move things to me without having to get up out of my chair and go over and pick them up. I'm a very lazy guy, but I, I'm okay. I, I grew up having to turn the TV for my dad, so I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm used to it. Yeah, I, had, I grew up with a TV that didn't have a remote. We had a dial on the machine. So There's one other young man that's in the group, and that's Donnie. Mm-hmm. And he's affected by Down syndrome. They're very advanced in studying DNA, but they can't figure out what Donnie's powers are. Yeah, Donnie's hero gene is mutated enough, they're not sure what his power is. In this world, the hero doctors are able to look at your DNA and sort of tell you what your power is going to be. So Philip's dad knew Philip was going to be a telekinetic before the powers started manifesting themselves. But with Donnie, there's a mutation in his genes, and they don't know what his power is going to be. But he's one of the most important figures in Philip's life, I think, for a number of reasons. He offers a friendship to Philip that comes with no strings, no judgments. It's a very pure and kind friendship. I love Donnie. Philip also loves his younger brother who, while all younger brothers can be annoying, they have a genuine affection for each other. Yes. And Patrick doesn't know because you have to reach kind of the age. Yes. Kind of like get your bar mitzvah into the... (laughs) Yes, exactly. So no one's supposed to know until they're 12. And it's just sort of this well-kept secret. The kids who are under 12 have their own school in Freepoint, but they don't realize the older kids are in hero school. They just think it's a small town. And then, of course, I wouldn't set it up like that if I wasn't going to have Patrick find out at some point before he's supposed to, and then have a reaction. Yeah, Patrick's a super speedster. He's basically like the Flash. Yeah, I think you'll see as the series continues uh, in strings for sure, but even more in the third book, which I'm writing right now, they have a very adversarial brother competitive relationship, but there is genuine affection and love for each other underneath that. And again, this is mirroring my own relationship with my older brother. We're about two years apart, a lot of shared interests. We grew up fighting with each other like crazy, and now we're really, really good friends. 
So you mentioned earlier that the people who run the school and some of the parents are concerned about kids with disabilities in their class so much so that they don't let them compete in this exercise slash contest called the, the Big Sim. The Super the Sim. The Super Sim. Yeah, and I guess the best way to explain it is, I hate doing this, but if you've seen the Harry Potter movies where they have the Triwizard Tournament where they have, and I think that was Goblet of Fire, where they had kids come from other schools and they competed to crown a champion. It's a little like that. The Super Sim is something that the adults plan for the students to do who are learning to become heroes as sort of an exercise. So all the adults are the judges, they play the roles of the villains, and it all takes place in town like a real, it's almost like a, I guess sometimes when you see a city do some kind of emergency preparedness test or what have you. So it's sort of like that, but it's also for fun. And and they haven't been doing them for a while because there was a death decade or two before Philip came along. And it was a disabled hero who was involved in the super sim, and there was a death that came out of it. And so they banned it. They stopped doing it altogether. But the growing threat outside of Freepoint is such that the adults have realized we've got to train these kids up to be ready to go. So they bring the super sim back, and then they tell these kids in special ed they can't be part of it. And they have to actually go to court to petition to earn the right to be included. Spoiler, they get included, and maybe it doesn't go exactly how they hoped. Well, you mentioned Harry Potter, and while there are some superficial similarities, just when you're approaching building a fantastical world, how do you avoid falling into the traps of tropes? It was going to be compared to Harry Potter inevitably just because I'm sending them to a special school. And like you said, I think most of the comparisons are superficial. My book doesn't actually spend a lot of time in the school. There are a few classroom scenes and what have you. But the majority of the book takes place outside of school. And another comparison is it it starts in the fall and the book ends at the end of the spring. That changes a little bit as the books move forward. One of the things I, I wanted to avoid was redoing how the U.S. government reacts to superheroes because there have been so many comics and movies that have done that. You know, Marvel had their Civil War way before the movie. They had a run in the comics called Civil War where the government wanted to know the identity, the secret identity of every hero in order to basically keep tabs on them. And the heroes in that run of comics were split down the middle and it actually sets everything off when Spider-Man takes off his mask and reveals himself to be Peter Parker and he sides with the group that's going to agree with what the government wants. Well, the X-Men movies that came along, they created a vaccine and they wanted to cure the heroes with this evil vaccine that would take away their mutation. And so I wanted to be careful not to go down paths like that that had already been explored. But you can't discover heroes living in America without the government having some reaction to it. It's just the state of the world we live in right now. If we woke up tomorrow and there was a Superman flying around Detroit, you better believe Congress would have something to say about it pretty darn quick. And so hopefully I managed to avoid any of those pitfalls. That was my big worry, was not redoing any of the government stories that have been done before. Being one of the founders of CinemaSins, you've critiqued a lot of other people's work. Sure. So have people submitted novel sins to you? Oh, yes. There have been videos made that have uh, listed off the sins of the book. It's all in good fun. I wouldn't have put the book out there if I didn't expect that. And people always ask me, you know, if somebody ever makes a movie of this book, will you turn around and send that movie on the channel? And the answer is heck yes. Like in a heartbeat because the videos aren't real. We're just having fun. We, we love movies. We just chose overly nitpicky jerkwad as sort of the persona. You know, the pitch for the channel when we thought of it was the, the Simpsons comic book nerd 
having his own YouTube channel ranting about movies. You so know, you'll have like, to say worst source material ever. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, you know, that, that person is going to think they know everything when they don't. They're going to get some stuff right. They're going to get some stuff wrong. They're going to get really upset about tiny little details that don't matter. That's what the channel is. It's just for show. It's just for fun. But I actually wrote some stuff into both these books that have been published and the third one I'm writing now as sort of winking little nods to people that might watch the channel. One of the cliches we do a lot is in the videos is that it seems like in movies, superheroes very often have a dead parent. Just a Bruce Wayne's dad died. So much of children's fiction has that as well. Exactly. Yeah. Harry Potter's parents were both dead. And that's, I'm not going to tell you who, but there's a character in, in this book that's one of the main core that loses a parent. And that was, again, I'm not trying to joke about death, but that was a little wink to, yes, my book does have the cliche of a superhero having a dead parent. There are other cliches baked into the book as well that we make fun of on the channel. And I guess that's just my way of having a little fun. I don't know. Let's go more in depth on some of his friends. You mentioned Henry. He's mm -hmm. a telepath. Mm -hmm. He's in a wheelchair. He is. And he is grouchy. Yes, he's grouchy. He loves to eat and he's grouchy, hopefully in an endearing way. He was very fun for me to write because he's got a sarcastic comment for any situation. It doesn't matter how life and death things are, he's got a quip. And he really becomes in a lot of ways, Philip's closest friend, because it's Henry's telepathy that allows Philip a sort of sight. Of course, it's Bentley, the solution finder, who figures this out. But he says to Henry, well, instead of just planting thoughts in somebody's mind, why can't you plant an image? Why can't you see something with your own eyes and take that and force it into Philip's brain so that he can, quote unquote, see what you can see. And that allows Philip just enough sight, I do quote marks, in order to use his telekinesis in missions and battle scenarios. And it's that connection between the two of them that bonds them really tightly and then eventually in strings in the second book starts to sort of push a wedge in between them. Philip was blind since birth. That's correct. But James became blind later on. That's correct. So when Philip gets to see for the first time, it is an overwhelming experience for him. Yeah. And it was a tough one for me to write because it's not something I can ever know what that's actually like. I talked to some blind people and I did a lot of reading to do some research, but there aren't a lot of people who are blind who suddenly gain sight in the real world. But what about deaf people who get cochlear implants? Absolutely. And that was one place I went. Another place I went is I have a friend who's colorblind who recently got a pair of glasses oh, yeah, that can those, yeah. fix that for him. And there are a few videos of people like that online, and it's very emotional for them to see full color spectrum when they haven't before. I imagine for Philip, seeing for the first time was just as shocking and, and weird. And I hope it comes across that he never quite gets used to it. And then Bentley, who beyond his physical disability with his light case of CP, he has to walk with braces on mm -hmm. his legs, would seemingly have everything. He has a very rich father, mm. but he definitely does not have love in his life. He doesn't. Yeah, his dad is probably the most important custodian slash hero figure in Freepoint. He's on the board of directors. They have a lot of money. But Bentley is the youngest of several siblings by a good decade. All of his brothers are older and have left the house, so he's an only child. Uh, and his dad is gone a lot because he's doing hero stuff and making all the big decisions. It's a thread that will go through almost all the books, that their relationship is not great, Bentley and his dad. And so this group of friends that he meets really gives him life and gives him hope. There's a three-year gap between the books, mm -hmm. and 
the comic, The Hero's Journey, comes in and it fills in one of the major plot points that kind of happens in between the two books. That's correct. Yeah, when when Strings picks up the second book, it's three years later, and one of our main characters has died. And I actually always intended to do the time jump. I originally didn't intend to explain what had happened to cause that death. But when Turner and I were talking about promoting strings, we came up with this idea to do a graphic novel, one-off, The Hero's Journey, and set it between the two books. And it became very obvious to me right away, this is the story I need to tell. I uh, worked with a friend of mine, Jeremy Simser. He's a storyboard artist who has done Game of Thrones, Deadpool 2, The Terror. He's a legit storyboard artist. And so he drew the comic um, and I wrote it. And uh, yeah, it tells one very specific story, fills in some gaps that you might have when you start strings. It seems like it's becoming more common for series fiction to have standalone short story in between, they call it like 1.5 or something yeah. like that. And it's really creative that you did something besides just a, a straightforward short story. Yeah, I would love to continue. We haven't had formal discussions, but I would love to do another one-off comic in between strings and the third book because there will be a four-year time jump between the second and third book. And yeah, I would love to try and do the same thing and uh, find another story in between to tell that fills in the gaps. Boy, going straight to college, huh? <laughs> they are one. going straight to college. <laughs> the third book will pick up with them as sophomores in college. At the beginning of Strings, we've had this three-year jump. And as you mentioned, PTSD, there's just been a lot of loss, a lot of trauma in these intervening years. Mm. And I mean, you've put a lot on these kids' shoulders. I have. And it's intentional because I want to inspire people to be heroes in everyday life. But I want them to know that every time you decide to be a hero, it comes with risk. Whether you have superpowers or you're just helping a lady carry her groceries across the street, you still might get hit by a car when you choose to do that. And too many comic book movies in particular, they pull all their punches. Nobody ever really dies. Nobody ever stays dead for very long. The consequences... I mean, I don't know how – you probably have seen most of the Marvel films. Mm -hmm. In the movie Civil War, Tony Stark's buddy – what's his name? Rhodey. Don Cheadle plays – he yes. plays War Machine. War Machine. That's what I, the name I'm thinking of. So he's knocked out of the sky and falls down. And for a moment, you're like, oh, no. And like he's paralyzed. But before the movie is even over, it shows him in rehab with like fancy Tony Stark electronic legs walking. And you're like, oh, he's going to be just fine the next time I see him. And in both – the final two Marvel movies, the Avengers Endgame and the one before that, uh, Infinity War, he's fine. There's no mention of him having lost his legs or having to fight back and rehab that. And I just feel like that is too wish fulfillment. I want to give you an escape. I want to give you a fantasy. But the real world has to creep in there for me or there's no point in telling the story. And so what I figured is that by the start of Strings, Philip is messed up. He would have to be. Everything that he's gone through in the first book and so he's th seeing a therapist, he's on medication, he's having panic attacks, passing out, sleeping in the backyard on the ground. He's lost. And that's his journey. He's going to have to find his way out of that. But those things are real. And we, we can't fly in real life. And we can't shoot lasers out of our eyes. But any everyday hero takes on risk when they decide to do something good for somebody else. And I wanted to make sure I didn't shy away from that. Well, and you can see it with first responders, firemen, policemen, paramedics, that, I mean, it is just such a, a burden they carry with them with all that tragedy they it see. Is, it is. And if you haven't been a part of it, you just think it all goes away. You don't think about them having to remember and deal with the, that trauma for the rest of their lives. 
There's some things you can't unsee. That's that's exactly right. Except for Philip. Yeah. <laughs> that's a blind joke, as yeah, they would say in the book. That would fit right in in the book, yeah. Now, one of the themes that comes in the hero's journey and then into strings is that while he's kind of been the captain of the squad, he's become very bossy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's sort of the wedge between he and he and Henry is that he's begun to take Henry for granted. Henry is the only way Philip can see anything through that telepathy trick. And they even outfit Henry with computer screens that sit at the periphery of his vision. And Henry gets really, really good about sending Philip images while still doing his own thing, uh, multitasking with his eyes, if you will. But it's only a matter of time before Philip starts to take that for granted and starts to treat Henry as a as a tool rather than a person. And Henry gets offended by that. And the whole second book is basically about their relationship and how they will attempt to heal it. So that everyone doesn't think this is just a downer (laughs) (laughs) and these serious themes, teenage life is still a major part of their experience. Even though they're out saving lives, they still have to deal with everything that teenagers have to go through. And one of the things is a young woman named Emmeline. What is she like? And what is Philip doing about liking her? Well, Philip doesn't know why he likes her. He's only 15. And as I recall, when I was a young teen, if I liked a girl, I didn't really know why. I just had a flutter of butterflies in my stomach. And so the the other kids tease him about it and eventually get him to talk to her. And again, I didn't want to derail the superhero story into a romance novel. But 15-year-olds are going to have crushes. That's just reality. And I think if I didn't mention that, then I would be doing a disservice to teenagers everywhere. And she's she's unexpected. I was very conscious of not wanting her to be sort of that manic pixie dream girl that a lot of movies have that's just perfect. And she really only exists to make the hero feel good about himself. She challenges him in a number of ways and she forces growth upon him. Hopefully that comes off on the page. I wanted her to be every bit his equal in that relationship. Well, she has her own life beside him. If they're not out together, she's got things to do. Yep. She's got plenty to do. And she's a teleporter, just like Philip's mom. And that may even be part of that attraction, initial yeah. attraction. And, you know, without spoiling anything, it was, it was never my intention to do any kind of love triangle. She's the one for him. And they may have some ups and downs on the way, but I'm not going to bring in some other, it's not going to be like Archie and Betty and Veronica where there's some competitor or what have you. There's not going to be a will they, won't they break up kind of thing. Because I feel like, I feel like so many stories with teenagers, superhero or not, do that already. So she's meant to be a steadying force for him, a rock for him, somebody that much like a therapist, he can feel very safe around, but will also challenge him when needed. Strings is very much kind of a cat and mouse book, mm-hmm. except we don't know who the cat is. That's correct. Yeah. The one criticism I've heard that I think is probably fair is that the reveal of the villain is pretty late. Not the reveal of the existence of the villain, mind you, but who that villain is comes very late in the book. And again, I, I even take Philip's dad out of the picture for a great period of time. So it's really just him and his brother and this gang of heroes trying to figure out what, if anything, they can do to help save the day and this crisis that is ongoing. In strings, uh, heroes are disappearing. The kids don't know why. They don't know where they've gone. And Philip's dad is one of those that disappears. In the midst of all of that, he decides to get a dog. Because, <laughs> you know, while dad's away, the kids are going to get a dog. <laughs> all right. You've mentioned that you're working on the third book and that they're in college. Is it going to be like Van Wilder for the Ables? <laughs> no, no. But I am doing a little bit more right what you know. So I was a speech comm major in college. 
I took a speech class my sophomore year where we gave four speeches throughout the semester. And the first one was an impromptu introductory speech. And then we did a persuasive speech. And then we did an informational speech. And then we did a motivational speech. And so I'm bookmarking the major movements of the third book with Philip's speeches in that class. And the first one goes terribly and he has a panic attack and falls down. Um, But by the end, he's going to be a much better public speaker. But his speech will also tell you a lot about his mental state at the end of this journey. That sounds a pretty impressive framing device there. Well, hopefully it works. I, I, <laughs> I, I, I said to my wife the other day, the first book, I didn't know what I was doing. The second one, at least I had the plot ahead of time. This time, I, I have the plot. I have some foreshadowing. I have some symbolism in mind. And I finally feel like a real writer on this third book. So, Third time's the charm. There you go. Exactly. Well, Jeremy, I want to thank you so much for stopping by today. It's a real pleasure, and I appreciate you driving over from Nashville. No, thank you for having me. I appreciate any interview I get to do, but especially a long-form one like this that really lets me kind of dive into why I've done what I've done. It's especially nice, so I appreciate the time. Jeremy Scott is the author of the young adult novel Strings, which is the second book in the Able series, which is published by Turner. I'm Stephen Ussery, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is recorded in the studios of WYPL in Memphis, Tennessee. If you have any questions or comments, you can email us at wyplfm at gmail.com or write to us at Book Talk, care of WYPL, 3030 Poplar Avenue, Memphis, Tennessee, 38111, or call us at 901-415-2752. This recording of Book Talk is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivative Works 3.0 License for the United States. You are free to share, copy, distribute, or display and perform this work, but there are restrictions. Nothing in this license impairs or restricts WYPL's moral rights. Thank you for listening to Book Talk.